Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. I'm Becca Piastrelli, and this is Belonging, where I talk about what it means to belong to the earth, to yourself, to your ancestors, and in community. Hello, and welcome back to the Belonging Podcast. It's Becca Piastrelli here. So glad to have you with me for another episode. And today I come to you deeply humbled, (laughs) deeply humbled by my body and my energy and the collective and nature. Have you had the experience of feeling really frustrated in a seasonal transition, like desiring it to be linear and having a hard time surrendering to the stop start of it. I find this to be particularly true for me between winter and spring, which we are in that transition now here in the Northern Hemisphere, if you're listening around the time of publishing. And I live in a place where it doesn't really snow. If it does, we're alarmed. But I've seen in recent weeks this experience of winter becoming spring where for some of my friends who live in like the Midwest or the North or East coast, the trees are blooming. The garden is in the seedlings are planted and then it snows or there's an overnight freeze or a really intense storm comes through and people are frantically, you know, covering their rose bushes or bringing their plants in or putting blankets over their seedlings or taking pictures of or videos of snow falling on apple blossoms and trying to be with the experience of this is natural, right? The stop start the herky jerky sense of one season moving into another but also like ah the discomfort of it. And I, I'm one to, I've worked a lot on really honoring the length of winter and have like a cognitive understanding that the transition from winter to spring is not easy, linear, like one to the next. 
And I have worked hard on not sort of doing like goal crushing in January and accepting that February often to me feels like a little bit hopeless, but that our ancestors felt it too. And to just really appreciate an inner winter and appreciation of this understanding of wintering and, and knowing that, you know, that first burst of warmth and sunlight, wherever, whenever it comes feels like so beautiful on the bones and it may go away for a little bit, but it does come back. And, a deeper understanding in my bioregion of all the little natural markers that take you from one season to the next. And it's not just like one to the other. It's this, the Daphne blooms in early March. And then when the Daphne is done, the azaleas come in. And then when those are done, like the rains come for the second time because our rains come in late fall. So then the rains come and then the native grasses shoot up and then the mushrooms come in and they disappear quickly. And just appreciating all the little steps it takes to go from one season to the next as the wheel constantly turns. So as it relates to my body, my seasonal ancestral cyclical body, I'm just reaching eight months postpartum and I'm like really yearning to feel energy in my body. And I started to feel that in the last few months. I started to feel excitement for creating. I started to make little creations that I've been sharing with you and on Instagram and getting really excited that like, oh, I was coming into, I know I'm like alchemically shifted in this transition of identity that I'm in. And also a sense of like, oh, I can feel that wise self that was always there. And I can also feel new energy coming and I'm just ready to get to it already. And then in the last week or so, I've basically hit an energetic wall. Like, nope, Nope, body pain, lower energy. And I can, you know, attribute this to my cycle. I can attribute this to the collective. I can attribute this to hormones. I can attribute this to what's going on in the news. I can attribute this to the pandemic. Yes, yes, yes. And if I am a seasonal being, then sometimes it snows on the apple blossoms. And all we can do is sit and appreciate it, knowing that spring is coming. So I'm trying to take my own advice <laughs> and share this experience I'm having right now of having to step back a little bit from that forward momentum that I was feeling and excited about just honor, honor, honor my nonlinear cyclicality. Trust it. Even if my brain is like, can't quite wrap itself around it. So in honor of that, of transitions, of identity, of feeling lower energy of mothering. I have a really beautiful conversation to share with you today. The interview is with Megan McGuire, otherwise known as Forest Whisperer on Instagram that I highly, highly, highly recommend you if you're, if you're down with the Instagram. I know not everyone here is. Megan has just shares incredible resources around earth connection, spirituality, ancestral connection that feels really relatable. And I asked her to come on because of what she shares around being a mother of almost three babes and having a day job and also being um, a spiritual earth honoring woman. So Megan McGuire is a mother, partner, permaculture gardener, and ritual weaver living on the lands of the Dakota people. Her ancestors have tended the Mississippi River for many generations, and she continues to steward the river in her day job as a biologist with the federal government. 
Her ancestors came to this land primarily from Europe, and she is on a long journey to reclaim their earth-honoring practices, especially their seasonal rituals and holy days, and to wed these practices to her local bioregion. As someone raised with evangelical Christianity, she is continuously healing from religious trauma. She seeks to belong herself to the land and water through devotion, ritual, and activism. So I welcome you, whether you identify as a mother or not, to weave into this conversation with us around really ritual and ancestral connection in the everyday and what that can look like for you. Enjoy this conversation with Megan McGuire. Well, Megan, thank you so much for joining me on the Belonging Podcast. This has been a long time coming as far as I'm concerned because you and I have been DMing and being in communication for a bit of time now. So it's really cool to connect in this way. And I asked you to come on to talk about mothering. We're going to take it not just to mothering, but obviously that's a very big part of my life right now is coming into being a mother early stages. But I really love the way you share about mothering and tending to your family and tending to your home from this ancestral reverence place and that you really have a deep um, devotion to reweaving the threads of your ancestors, ancestral ways and that you bring it into your work and your activism and your sharing and your learning and your being. So I would just love to know if you can share a bit about who you are and where you are and who and what you come from and whatever feels true in this moment (laughs) to share, because that's like a big question, but whatever (laughs) feels true. Yeah, that is a big question. I consider myself a mother. I use she, her pronouns, and I have two children, and I'm expecting a third. So I'm 25 weeks pregnant when we're recording this video. I live in Minnesota on the traditional lands of the Dakota people, and I come from a lot of different European cultures, primarily European cultures. So I have many different ancestral lineages and primarily they're from Northern Europe, though not all of them are. And some have been on this land for a very short time and some have been on this land for many generations. I've feel connected to this land because many of my ancestors' bones are buried here. I'm the sixth generation of my family to work on the Mississippi River. Wow. So my great, great, great grandfather who came from Ireland built steamboats that traveled the Mississippi River. And another great, great, great grandfather was a boatman on those steamboats. Hmm. And then their children married and also worked on the river. And I work on the river now from the angle of ecosystem restoration and environmental protection. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I'm part of this lineage that's 
really embedded in this landscape and the waters of this landscape in particular. So I feel I feel a deep sense of belonging here in this bioregion and to the land and waters of this bioregion. And I really like the perspective of Tokopa that belonging is a act that you do of devotion. So you belong yourself to something like by choice and by offering your skills and your love and your attention to it. Mm, yes, beautiful. We had Tokopa on this podcast and I remember I asked like, what do you belong to? And she verbed it. I belong myself to. I remember mm-hmm. being thinking like, oh, right. That really takes it from a passive experience into an active experience because we are here now. And I feel like in the last few years, as this discussion has gotten bigger about for those of us who are like, oh, decolonization, right? A lot of us who come from Europe have primarily European ancestors are contending with settler colonialism and living on stolen land and trying to connect with ancestral ways. There can be a sense of like, well, I shouldn't be here. I don't belong anywhere. And this making it more active and be like, well, we are here. What are we going to do about it? How can we honor the lands we come from and the ways of our ancestors on those lands and also be here on whatever Mm -hmm. land you are in this moment listening? Megan and I are on different lands on Turtle (laughs) Island and how, how can we honor both? right? And that's something I really admire in what you share primarily on Instagram is the way you do that and the fact that you are also in a job that's about environmental protection. There's something about it that feels like more woven and less it's less heady. You're really <laughs> taking – I just love and – you, and you have a family, right? You have these children and you're showing them these ancestral ways and like you're on land in Minnesota. So I guess I'm just – curious about that. And I'm I'm like, what is my question here? I'm basically like, <laughs> how? How? As a new yeah. mother who's like always, I mean, literally living my life out loud on this podcast, like how I'm I'm looking to you as this teacher of like, <laughs> how can we sorry, so much pressure. I'm looking to you. I admire, I admire the way you do it. And I'm I'm curious about how it feels to you, how it's, how it's started, how it's grown. So I've been working through this long trajectory of feelings about being on stolen land over the last couple of years and feeling like almost guilty about being here or feeling guilty about feeling like I belong here because I feel like I shouldn't. But where I'm at now after processing a lot of those feelings and and kind of grappling with a lot of those issues is that I don't know what the answer is, but I I feel like there has to be pathways for everyone who's here to come into belonging with land and with community and have full personhood. And, And that we have to imagine a future where that's possible. And that pathway will look different for everyone based on their unique ancestral lineages and their personhood and their positionality 
but that everyone needs to meet that deep human need for belonging. So I try to belong myself to the land and to my family and to my community in the ways that I'm able to and teach my children that they have responsibilities and that they're part of the community, but that they're also welcome and that they're full members of the human and non-human community that is here. And we do that in a lot of different ways. We do a lot of really small kind of land honoring rituals just in our backyard, which is a suburban backyard. (laughs) And, you know, it's fun to see that over time, my son, who's five, is picking up on them and he remembers them. We were talking about our Easter eggs that we decorated and dyed this year. And he was saying how he remembered that we were going to till them into the garden and that we're going to, we put them in the garden both to fertilize it and because that's a traditional offering Mm -hmm. that our ancestors made to the land in the spring for fertility and for an abundant crop. So he just remembered that from last year and he does things as well like our cat died last year and he'll go and leave offerings of <laughs> like candy or toys or like things that are meaningful to him. <laughs> like he might leave his dump truck over there and oh wow. You know, it's like that's what's really important to him. And so when he does things like that, it shows me that he it, it's just like part of his life and it's becoming just woven into how he sees the world. Mm. I remember you sharing that you, when your cat died and and the whole burial yeah. that you had your child a part of, which I think that really struck me as not shielding him from death, mm-hmm. but bringing him into this like beautiful, important, intense with grief experience of of being alive, which is death and i i was very struck by that and i think you you said he he expressed grief he was expressing grief oh, that you yeah. really allowed for oh yeah definitely he had a lot of grief and i think it was really good for him to be there and to see it and i've seen um people share that it's really helpful for children to be able to touch the body of a pet or even like loved one who has died to like feel that their body is cold and they're not there anymore. And then seeing them in the ground, being able to come back and visit him is really healing. And it's not like, oh, they're just there. And then poof, they're just gone. And you never see what happened to them. And you don't have that closure. So he was part of the whole process. He helped like dig the hole. He helped bury him. You know, he made flowers around him and then this grave is just in our backyard, which I think is so amazing. And I wish that our more of our ancestors were right here in our backyard because that's how they used to be. I mean, right. you know, hundreds of years ago, people would just be buried on their farm and there'd be the mounds. And so you could just go and bring out a plate of food and leave it for your ancestors, you know, every day or every week. And it wasn't a big production to go to a cemetery you know, way down the road or something. They just lived with you. And sometimes even people were buried 
under the floors of the house or like at the threshold. And so they were there in your home. So people would just feel like their loved ones were still with them and they could easily visit them and speak with them. And everyone was kind of living together. And and uh, we still do because my my son on his own was counting how many pe- people were in our family and he was like counting the humans and then he was like and our living cat Datura and then Archie is six and Archie was dead but he still was counted as a member of our family yeah so he was like yeah you know dead people are people too right <laughs> oh cool so yeah. so different from the overculture. I think that's really powerful. Yeah, I um I interviewed Jerry Grace Lyons who I took a death midwifery course with a couple years ago now. And um I was really struck by all the like historical teaching around just having the body of a loved mm-hmm. one, a dead loved one in the home and that's what a parlor is for and the living room is where the living people would be oh, yeah. <laughs> and the parlor is where the dead one was and that's where you could go and sit vigil and speak to them and see it and then they were buried yeah under the house or at the threshold or in the garden where you grew your food mm-hmm. and so that the relationship continued and it was literally taken into you and I just remember being like, wow, we're so far from that. But then to hear and see, because that's that's what I'm talking about with things being heady is sometimes I just get so caught up in um, the way it used to be and it's not that anymore and that sucks and and I get so historically focused. Uh, Mm -hmm. I get like just really theoretical and what I appreciate about the way you share is you're like, it's complicated, it's nuanced. And here's what I'm doing, uh, <laughs> which shakes me into the belonging myself now, which feels like yeah. an important act. Yeah. And one thing that I've been doing to help myself conceptualize being with my ancestors in the ground is meditate. Like I'll sit on the ground and meditate on the fact that the ground is literally connected everywhere on earth. Like whether you are talking about you have to go through ground that's under the ocean or ground that's across a mountain range or whatever, it's still connected. You're connected to every square inch of earth around the entire globe. So no matter where your ancestors are buried, you can sit on the ground right where you are and feel into them and space and time don't matter that much. (laughs) But just sitting on the ground is a really important and old practice too. And a lot of ancestral European cultures like Utaseta just means out sitting. You just go out and you sit on the burial mounds and get visions and hear messages from the ancestors. But I think you can do that anywhere because most of us don't have access to being in close proximity to the graves of our ancestors. But we don't have to be. (laughs) We don't have to be. Right. And I think if we get caught up in following the rules, quote, rules, or doing it the perfect way, I think we're missing the point. And I, so this, one of like the big reasons I reached out to you is you made a post back in October and it, the image is you nursing your baby. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read it if that's okay. Oh, sure. Okay. So wonderful. 
It says, mothering is ancestral connection. Parenting is ancestral reverence. Self-care is ancestral reverence. Our children are our ancestors. We are our ancestors. Our bodies are woven of their DNA. Our bones house their songs. Changing a diaper is a ritual of ancestor veneration. Rocking a baby through the night is a spell of lineage healing. This is ceremony. This is spiritual practice. To my babe, I am the world tree, flowing with nectar, meeting all her needs. To her, I am the great goddess of love and nourishment. I have never felt more connected to the great mother than while nursing my babies. So if you have young children, never think that someday they'll get back to your spiritual practice. This is the greatest honoring, the deepest practice right here, right now. Thank you so much for those words. As someone on a very personal level who had quite a practice pre-baby and and in just like stepping across the threshold into mother have felt like my entire life obliterated and I'm putting it back together piece by piece. Your words sort of reminded me of what my body already knows, which is like this is the greatest deepest spiritual practice of ancestral connection I can be in in this moment. Mm-hmm. Even just like, what did you say? Changing a diaper is a ritual of ancestor veneration. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I really would love to know your thoughts on that because you're about to be a third time mother and I'm a new one and I can get really caught up in what's been lost to me in this identity shift and a real confusion as to who I am now and how this reframing of mothering parenting as ancestral spiritual practice has supported you and can support us. Yes. So I, I felt the same as you feel with my first child. And I remember wanting to add this child to my life, but like nothing else would change. And I would do all the same stuff. And somehow I would just like plus one. (laughs) And I would keep doing yoga and meditate and have alone time and have creative time and all of these things because, you know, I have boundaries and I have self-care and I still do those things sometimes, but they're not as important to me and maintaining them at the same level as I was doing before isn't as important to me. And it took a while to kind of settle into that because it is this big process. And I think I resisted the change for a long time. And I've been a mother for five years now. So it's gotten easier. I'd say adding our second child was a lot easier than adding the first child because I was already in this pattern What I think about a lot is what my grandmother's lives were like, what the grannies, the babas, what their lives were like 200, 500 years ago. And they were often sharing a one-room house with, you know, maybe a dozen people of different generations. They didn't have alone time, really. They didn't have, like, child-free women's retreats over a weekend. (laughs) They didn't, you know, have privacy even. And they just had maybe an icon in the corner or 
they would pray as they needed bread or they would stop and linger at the crossroads, which were very sacred. And they just had all these little rituals that were woven into their lives. And that's how they did their spiritual practice because they had their children with them all the time. And they were in these large multi-generational family configurations. So there has to be a way to do spiritual practice with our families and together and in the everyday. And yeah, they also had amazing big community celebrations on Beltane and Midsummer and all these things. But for the most part, the day-to-day had to be woven into what they were doing. But I think that's really beautiful. It doesn't need to be separate. It doesn't need to be pulled out and exclude our children. And it can be what we are doing with our children. And I do think that our, ourselves and our children are the embodiment of our ancestors. And some people believe that sort of more spiritually, like spirits return through a lineage and where there's like threads of certain energies that are coming through lineages. And some people might see it more just physically, like our DNA, our bodies. We have epigenetics. We learn from our birth families, all that kind of thing. So whether you're kind of a materialist or more of a spiritual person, you could see it either way. And our, our own bodies, our children's bodies are our ancestors' lineage manifest now and embodied. And so by loving them and giving them time and patience and attention, we are healing our ancestors. We're healing our lineage traumas more than we could ever do, you know, through just sort of solo journeying in like um, a more abstract kind of metaphysical approach. Like this is like physically, literally healing our ancestral lineages in the moment. I, right. (laughs) Just sort of like, right. It feels like it's breaking the spell of individualism a little bit. Your words feel like that where somehow I can only just speak from my own experience right now of really grieving my alone time, like really grieving pre-baby spaciousness and really associating, I mean, which I think is natural and I, I don't make it wrong. It's made it a lot easier to not, to not make it wrong. And I see within that a, a real valuing in the culture of large, like connection to self, any sort of healing work is like a, it needs time and space and solitude. And that's just impossible <laughs> for the most part, right? Depends on maybe your level of privilege to do when you become a parent. Yeah. And yeah, just thinking about my own great grandmother who was, you know, one of 12 children. And I recently read her, the, the journal, her sister wrote about their lives being Polish immigrants to, well, we were talking about this, Polish slash German, Prussian, yeah. <laughs> but from that part of the world, right, through New Orleans uh, at a time when New Orleans wasn't so fun, <laughs> particularly for immigrants. And 
yeah, six years old working in a shrimp factory, mm-hmm. factory housing burnt down. They were penniless and starving and their lives were saved by like a kind, a kind woman who brought them in and gave them lima bean soup. And so lima bean soup, even just eating soup to me feels like this thing I can share with my daughter and mm. with my partner and with my community that feels like lineage healing work that feels like connection. And, and that, that was a moment that perhaps like the pausing at the crossroads, that was a moment that was deeply important and impactful that I can feel in my bones and in my heart, you mm-hmm. know, and it's not a <laughs> child free women's retreat, which sounds great too, you mm-hmm. know, but it's, <laughs> it's these little moments that can be woven into the day to day that are a nod to the millions that came before me that softens, I think the blow of a new way of being a new life where I'm, you know, responsible for the life of this being and I have less time to myself. Like, yeah, there's a softening in that transition in the reframe that you're offering, if that makes sense. Yeah. And also I think if you can weave in things that are spiritually nourishing to you into those moments, which you can't always do, but Sometimes things don't have to be done in alone time. So when I was nursing my my last baby, a lot of times when I would nurse her, I would try at least once a day as I was nursing her to call in the four directions and then speak a prayer where I would say things like, you know, I, I feed you with the blessings of the East. You are like the rising sun. You're fresh on earth. This is your new life. I feed you with the blessings of the South. You will grow and be as bright as the sun on the summer solstice and kind of go through and like have a ritual while I was nursing her to make a prayer of it. And that's how I think you can take things that maybe felt like something you would only do in a really deep, quiet, alone, meditative state and weave them in to something that is like caring for your child. Mm, beautiful. I actually find that my moments of like in the middle of a little middle of the night, like nursing her back to sleep where I could just really focus on my agony of not sleeping <laughs> is actually some of the most sacred moments, mm-hmm. you know, and I really thank you for sharing that little practice you had with nursing uh, that's that's really beautiful. Do you have any others? Like, what do you do when you change a diaper? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on how old they are because now she's at the age where she sort of battles the diaper yeah. and I'm mostly trying to get her from rolling off the changing table. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but one practice that I was doing, which didn't involve her, but was just for me, was to make my tooth brushing a ritual, which I know sounds like totally ridiculous. But when you're a parent, you're like, I have no alone time. What is the one time I have where I'm completely alone, just taking care of my body? And it's like taking a shower and brushing my teeth. And so I did this practice where for 30 days, I every time I brushed my teeth, I had this icon of the Holy Mother, as in um, like the Virgin Mary, on my counter in my bathroom. And I'd brush my teeth and I would 
kind of like almost do a rosary as I was brushing my teeth and be like, every part of my body is sacred and I'm doing this in devotion to healing and to the divinity of the earth. And when I shower, that's like a water ritual of cleansing <laughs> that I do in devotion to the earth and into to my own self-care. So, you know, it's so hard to have time for ritual, but if you can even do like a two-minute ritual and repeat it every day, it builds on itself and it's so powerful to have this, this time when your body knows it's coming and you're like, ah, I'm going to just settle down hmm. and relax into the flow of this ritual. And I think too, one thing I've noticed is not inventing new rituals all the time, like not doing something new every time helps because when you're thinking about it, it's hard to get in the flow. So if you can find something where it's like repeated and super simple, <laughs> like I stir my coffee clockwise three times every time before I plunge it down in the <laughs> in the French press and, you know, that's part of the, the morning ritual, things like that. Um, so that just kind of triggers you to drop into that spiritual state really easily can help. Mm, I appreciate this because I know not everyone listening is a parent mm -hmm. and that feels like just such, there's an approachability to it that I think in general as a culture that it really suffers from, suffer might be a strong word, I'll speak for myself, suffering under a really fear or a fear of or attachment to dogma from capital R religion I find like there is sort of this part of me that needs to make things ornate, that needs mm. to make things new again, that needs to somehow doesn't trust the simple and the easy and the repetitive, which is a really outsourcing of my own divinity and sacredness outside of myself, which is like, you know, that's that's been the effect of the burning times for many generations so I, I need the, as someone who even teaches this stuff, I need the mm -hmm. reminder consistently, particularly in this postpartum time where I just feel like my memory has been wiped to be like the brushing of the teeth, the nursing of the baby, the stirring of the soup, the stirring of the coffee, you know, the, the coming of the first buds and blooms of spring. Like it is everywhere. It is in all places. I'm actually curious because you shared in your bio that you were raised evangelical Christian mm -hmm. and you're recovering from that, your feelings about, yeah, any of that, <laughs> about mm -hmm. dogma and purity culture, any of it that, that has influenced your rituals or has driven, fueled the life you live now and the way you parent. Yeah, there's so many things. Um, that I was raised with that I find really harmful. And I've been recording them. So I have this practice that's like, old story, new story, where I, I take a sheet of paper and I on one side, I write what the old story is. And then I write what my story is. That's the new story. That's the story that I choose to believe and live. So like the old story would be bodies are inherently sinful and bad and we should transcend them and they're dirty and sexuality is 
sinful and, you know, so many things. And then I identify that. And then I'll write like bodies are beautiful. Sexuality is holy. Pleasure is good. (laughs) All the things that I really believe. And then other things that I've noticed are not as obviously religious, but they come from that. Like I need to believe the right thing or I will go to hell. So I need to know and be totally right and accurate and correct because the consequences are extremely dire, like an eternity of suffering. So that's pretty scary. That's sort of like the religious, you know, sin and hell thing. But then that kind of transfers through to a feeling of like obsession with being right and being afraid of being wrong because the consequences of being wrong are really scary. So then I write, you know, I'll have my new story where it's like, it's good to learn. You're always going to be wrong about some things. Life is a long journey of changing your opinion and uncovering new truths that might later be (laughs) revised and that no one knows, you know, everything and growth is a process. And so I like write these things down. And then sometimes when I'm feeling triggered, I can go back and read it and try to identify like which of the old stories is operating right now. Like, oh my God, I'm getting like so worked up because I'm having this old story come up about bodies being shameful or about the need to be right about everything. What is it that I really believe? And then I'll read my new story to remind myself, okay, this is this is the true story for me. And that's the old story that someone else gave me that I have decided isn't going to work for me anymore. But the old story always gets re-triggered. Um, I don't know if I'll ever outgrow it. I mean, maybe I will. That'd be really cool if I do, but I don't feel like I need to do that in order to be happy and to feel whole. I just need to identify it and then come back to what's true to me. And it's just kind of like this cycle where every time I get triggered, I can more quickly come back to what's true for me. So I don't stay in that triggered space as long. Thank you for sharing that practice. (laughs) <laughs> That's, do you do you do you record your voice or you write no, it down? Like, I write it. So I'll have like a piece of paper and then have the old story on one side and then the new story on the other and have like a counterpart for each one so I can go through and look at it when I need to and kind of remind myself visually. So I write, you know, as so I write it when I'm feeling more nourished and calm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with myself so that I can read it when I'm feeling spun out and triggered. Mm-hmm. That feels like a beautiful and important practice for so many things, <laughs> not just recovering yeah. from evangelicalism. Yeah, it just feels, I think, particularly when diving into earth honoring practices. I remember I was in a park near my old house and I was burning some plants and I was just doing a little offering to the land spirits and some kid went by on his skateboard and said, devil worshiper. (laughs) 
and I was twisted up for like weeks over it. And I'm not, I wasn't even raised particularly like evangelical or anything. I mean, definitely Christian, but I just, and I like didn't, I was afraid to leave the house and do that stuff for a while. And then I, um, I got over it eventually. Now I share that story because I'm like, yeah, well, what's the worst that can happen? Someone thinks you're a devil worshiper and you could be like, well, historically, let me just explain to you what led to, like I just in my head, (laughs) retrace like what led to his belief in that and the cultural belief. And it's a lot to unpack and right. We can love our lives and embrace beauty and pleasure and not have it fully unpacked and healed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, another thing I like doing too is kind of sneaking some folk practices into my Christian family's holidays sometimes because some of them are part of Christianity or like part of Christian folk practice. Right. Not necessarily what I was raised with, but it's been really fun to learn about that, like ones that feel compatible and then add them in. So at Christmas, we put straw under the tablecloth, which is a Polish practice at at Christmas for the Christmas Eve dinner. And the Christian version of it is that the straw reminds you that Jesus was born in a barn in a stable and his humble roots. And then the pagan version of the story is that straw is this really magical substance that's used in all kinds of folk magic and that it invokes the ancestors and creates a protective barrier around the family to bring in the new year and to move through like the darkest time of the year with protection and blessings. And then they would have a straw bundle, like a sheaf of straw sitting in one of the chairs at the Christmas table to represent the ancestors. So (laughs) I tell my family about sort of the Christian version of it. And we put the straw under the table at our Christmas meal. And then I'm also thinking about the ancestors and the pagan part of it. And so we can weave them together. And it's been great because they've been really willing to accept and um, incorporate these folk practices as long as they're not framed as being pagan. (laughs) Yeah, right. Hasn't that been been historically true? Mm Is the way a lot of these ancient pagan land practices have survived is like by slipping them in (laughs) through the church. For sure. So I'm kind of even bringing that back into my evangelical Christian family. And it's been really fun. And they've been, you know, pretty receptive to it. Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's, I think that's can be really, um, that a lot of us that are listening can take that into, cause I know I sometimes feel a heaviness of Christian privilege around holidays that I actually have always loved Yeah, and right. You can weave it together. That's something mm-hmm. to remember. It's, it doesn't have to be an either, or you just posted about like the binary that a lot of us apply to like, it's either Christianity or it's pagan folk practice. And it's like, actually, it, it's always been woven depending depending on where, you know, our, our ancestors have lived, have migrated. So in, the, in various wars and famines and 
leaders and religions and and we're just a part of that weaving that braided yeah. blood and so i love that example you gave with the straw yeah and with having children i'm always trying to make it simpler and not fight it as much but like mold it and adapt it so like we call halloween halloween we don't call it sawin i'm not like rowan it's sawin you know mm get get the right word you know we're like halloween but then we talk about how the ancestors come and we made an altar for our ancestors included our cat archie and he yeah. put like catnip on it and you know so we like try to adapt things that are in the overculture but give them meaning but make it easy so we're not like fighting and swimming against the tide all the time because it's just so exhausting to like have to recreate culture from scratch and have to like invent everything and have a new word for everything. So which we, you know, we do when we need to. But if there's opportunities that we can just really subtly change the message a little bit with children, I feel like that makes it so much easier because then they see that message in the rest of the culture and it more like reinforces what we're trying to teach as a family. Mm. Like that, you know, that we leave offerings to Santa and he's sort of like a land spirit and, <laughs> you know, I don't think that he sees anything in popular culture that really says otherwise. So that's how he views it, like just through that slightly different lens yeah oh cool yeah I've been thinking about how I'm gonna do that as she gets older <laughs> yeah okay noted Santa as a land spirit yes <laughs> we do Easter and we do Easter eggs but you know we don't really incorporate like the Christian meaning of Easter Mm -hmm. But we're just like right there with every other American family that celebrates Easter doing like Easter eggs and Easter egg hunts. But then we like till the Easter eggs into our garden as an offering and we leave offerings at the ancestors grave. So I just that that's kind of the approach that we're taking. We're not trying to we're trying to like subtly adapt um, rather than reinvent. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for sharing all of that. That there's one final little thing I wanted to touch upon in our as our time is coming to a close, which is a blog post you wrote called Northern European Birth Traditions, which we'll link to in the show notes for anyone who's planning to give birth in the near or far future. Uh, and so you published that last May when I was a few months away from giving birth to Atlas and I was sharing this before we hit record, but I was so grateful for it. I printed it out and gave it to my doula, <laughs> my birth doula. And I was like, how can we incorporate these into, you know, our birth plan and see what happens. And so you share things like the bathhouse, you write in Finland, Nordic and some Slavic cultures, women would birth in the sauna or bathhouse. The, th the sauna was the cleanest place on the homestead, frequently sanitized with steam. Bathing day was traditional Saturday was traditionally Saturday. So if you saw smoke rising from your pregnant neighbor's sauna on a day other than Saturday, 
you would know a birth was underway. All the neighbors would rush to prepare a meal for the new family as it was a great honor to be the first to bring the birthing family a meal. Wow, such a cool thing. And I don't mm-hmm. have a sauna to give birth <laughs> in, you know, with a chimney to let the neighbors know to bring me stew. But then you you ask in the blog post, for how do you apply this to modern day, right? The subtle weaving that you're talking to. And you're like talking about the bathroom, like the bathroom <laughs> is the sauna. And so in in my laboring with Atlas, I mean, I was in the shower so much. Mm. And I actually thought I'd be in the tub so much, but I was in the shower and Tim, my partner, was just like putting that shower right on my back, right on my points mm. to try to relieve like my <laughs> back pain because uh, yeah. I had back labor. And I, in the moment, I was like, this is the sauna because I, that, I took that to heart. You also talk about un- the untying of knots. What is that one? Uh, is that an Irish tradition? Oh, in many cultures, it was important to untie all knots, unbraid hair, and remove any ties from a woman during labor. It was believed the Mother Mary rushed to the aid of a woman laboring with loose hair. In Poland, any locks such as doors or chests were opened to aid the woman in opening the birth portal. And so... I had I had my hair braided and up on my head mm. to sort of honor my great grandmother Philomena, and then it was like it was like almost a forty eight hour labor, mm. but like hour three, I was like, I'm ready, open the portal, yeah. <laughs> took it down, yeah. and then and then I asked my friend Nisha to make sure all locks were unlocked in the house, so little things like that just really helped me through a really intense experience. And I think it's, it was just a beautiful offering. So I want to thank you and, and just ask if you have anything more to share about, about that and from your births mm. that you've had so far. Mm-hmm. Well, my first birth was really long, like yours, 45 hours. So yeah, similar. <laughs> oh, those first births are like, man, a lot of them are really, really long. Yeah. I feel like that's common. And then my second birth was less than two hours. And I, yeah, it was, yeah, we almost did not make it to the birth center. I was like home alone and my husband was picking up my son and I was like, yeah, you should, yeah, it's starting. You should come home. He's like, oh, should I, can I stop and get a straw bale for the garden? I was like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe. I mean, last time it was 45 hours. Why not? And I was like, no, probably not. And then I was in the shower, of course. And I was like, banging on the wall and talking to my midwife. And she was like, you have the phone in the shower. And I was like, yes, I have the phone in the shower. <laughs> like, yeah, you need to come in right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Tell. I can tell if you're at the point where you're bringing your phone into the shower, that things are really close. <laughs> so oh my, my daughter was born like 10 minutes after we got to the birth center. <laughs> wow. Did he get the straw bale? He did not get the straw bale, so that was good because he would have not – I would have given birth at home, <laughs> which yeah. could have been fine. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I love being in the water, and I think that is such a – the sauna is not just Finnish, but also in a lot of Slavic and Baltic cultures, people would give birth in the bathhouse. And it was also where people would lay out the dead, so that was where – both birth happened and death happened. And it was seen as this really powerful portal space. And when I was giving birth the second time, then our friend and and mutual teacher, Lara Valeda Vesta, put out 
the virtual smoke from the sauna in a post to our online community where she said, like, think of Megan because she's in the birth portal. So so there was some virtual smoke coming out of the the virtual yeah. sauna in that time. And it was really special to have everyone gathered around in the, the virtual online realms. I remember seeing that smoke. Yeah. Yeah, it was really special. And I, yeah, I had such a powerful experience with connecting with my ancestors right after that birth. This is kind of a personal story, but the first time I lost a lot of blood and I did the second time as well. And I was kind of disappointed because I had been asking the ancestors to make my birth easier the second time. And it was easier that it was shorter, but I still lost, like I almost hemorrhaged, like I had, uh, I lost a one and a half liters of blood, which is a lot. And I was like, why did that need to happen? And I had this vision with them where they were like passing around my baby and holding her and like wiping blood off of her and, you know, cleaning her. And it was, they were like wiping the blood off and they were like, no one has offered blood to the earth and to the ancestors for so many generations that it it took a lot to complete this this lineage wound and that's what it took to seal this offering and now we are fed because people haven't been offering their blood to the earth so it felt really like tender to have that vision with them and that I don't know, I just felt like we were closing, like kind of coming to this closure of this ancestral wound that needed to be healed. So mm. hopefully that means in my third birth, I won't <laughs> lose too much blood and it'll be really easy. So I don't know. Yeah. Guess we'll find out. When are you due? July 18th. Okay. Due date. Yeah. Wow. Now, I was listening to your podcast recently and, uh, the interview with Yaya, where she was saying that if you've given birth three times, you've like gone through these three initiations and yeah, have the capacity to be a medicine woman or something. I can't remember. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm right there. Here I'm you like, are. Right on the portal. <laughs> Get ready. <laughs> I didn't even know. And here I am like at this powerful threshold. Yes. I mean, I feel I feel the truth of that in so many ways. And then there's just like the pragmatic, like, well, third birth, third child. Yeah. You're like, I know how to do this. That's cool. I do feel like it's so nice going into the third birth because I'm not researching anything. I feel like, yeah. you know, I trust my body. It was hard the first time. It was good the second time, and now I'm just relaxed. Like, I got this. Yeah. <laughs> I know our ancestors who had like 10 children, right? Like, oh, what has yeah. been like? You know, that's when they're like cleaning as they're in labor. They get on the bed, they have the baby. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just like oh, totally. a different experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of my ancestors, when I've done the genealogy, um, I was looking at how like, 
there's like a mother and she's giving birth to her 10th child while her oldest daughter is, you know, giving birth the same year to her first child. And wow, holy cow, you know, we have this idea that, uh, you know, the grandparents were there and were like this village that were helping everyone, but sometimes they had their own babies, you know, still. Oh, good point. Like they were in postpartum while their children were in postpartum. Like, Whoa. That was that must have been intense, and you know. But then they had like a whole community of other. Yeah, I'm like people. that's when the neighbors see the yeah. sauna smoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oof. <laughs> yeah, that's not the case with me. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Wow. Uh, well, thank you. I could I could keep talking about. I could just you know wind and weave my way through various conversations around mothering and uh, ancestral connection and earthways and all of it. Um, but I'll bring it to a close here and say thank you so much for all that you've shared uh, here and. If anyone hasn't following you on Instagram, please follow forest.whisperer. Yeah. Forest.whisperer. <laughs> I get that dot. Uh, and Instagram. And then you have these cool classes. Do you want to share anything about your really cool classes you teach? Sure. I've done three now. So I did a fall and then I had a winter and then I did a spring and they were about primarily Northern European holidays and like seasonal practices. So different practices, rituals, um, folk magic, lore that people have around different times of the year. And it really, I offer them when I have the energy because <laughs> I, I have a day job. So this is not my full-time work. And I also have two children and I'm pregnant. So it's kind of like I do it when I feel this surge of energy and I have the capacity. So I don't know what it will look like. Probably won't be doing as much, you know, coming up with, you know, birth being imminent, but I will, you know, offer those classes as I feel um, like I have the capacity to do so. And I'll probably have some other ones. I really want to do a class on creating your own personal, bioregional, ancestrally inspired wheel of the year. And like, cool. Yeah. Making that a, like an individual or family based wheel that, you know, is tailored to your ancestors and to the land where you live and not just pulling something off the shelf. And like, you know, you've heard me talk about like how at Inbook, there, there's nothing growing here. There's no seeds germinating. You right. know, it's deep winter. So right. what does in bulk mean here on this land it's going to mean something different than where you are in california so that's like something i'm really inspired to do but we'll see when it happens but yeah i think instagram's the best place to find me because i pretty active there and i announce any classes that i would have through my account wonderful yeah and your website is livinginmythictime.com yeah, it's livinginmythictime.wixsite.com. We'll link in the show notes. Yeah. If you go to belongingpodcast.com. You just 
you just go there. But yeah, follow you on Instagram, I think is probably the best spot. Yeah, you can get the link. You can get my website link um, through my Instagram page too. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. Just the modern day link in bio. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Megan, thank you so much for being here and for sharing everything. And we'll be thinking of you with your upcoming birth and looking for the virtual smoke. Mm-hmm. Sending you strength and ease. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. I know your time is sacred, and the fact that you spent it with me talking about belonging means a lot. If you want to access show notes or links to old episodes, check out belongingpodcast.com. And if you know a friend who could really benefit from listening to this episode, share it with them. I'll talk to you soon.